You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. Well, thank you, Pastor Kirkwood, and uh, for leading us so well to the Father's throne in worship. And good evening, friends. Great to see you again, and uh, thank you for joining us for midweek worship. Eddie's family had financial needs. It was the late 1940s. And uh, they were not far removed from World War II and, and really not that far removed from the Great Depression. And so his family had financial problems. He was the oldest of seven children, and he wanted to do something to help his family financially. So when he became a young teenager, he began working at a local restaurant in town. He washed dishes. He made French fries from scratch. He enjoyed working there. It was a positive environment, a great place to work. So he continued to do that through the summer, and even after school started, he worked around his school schedule. He did this for about five years. Finally, Eddie arrived at his senior year of high school. He had aspirations to go to college, but was not really sure how that was going to work out. And uh, he received a partial scholarship to a college in Atlanta. And as encouraging as that was, Eddie still just didn't have the means to go to college. And so two ladies that he worked with, Gladys and Louise, they decided to do something to help Eddie. They took a large mayonnaise jar, they cleaned it out, they cut a hole in the top, they put a a sign on the side of the jar that said, Eddie's College Fund. They set the jar on the counter at the restaurant, and over time, as people would come in, customers would put money into that jar. They, They knew Eddie, he'd been there for years now, and so they would contribute. And over time, the money increased, and one day, Eddie sat down with his boss, and he counted that money. Uh, The college application deadline was close, and it was time to make a decision. So he counted the money, and I'm sure there was much anticipation. After all, he'd been watching that jar increase over the months. But sadly, as Eddie looked and and counted that money, it was not enough. Uh, Eddie was in a desperate financial situation, and he would not have enough on his own to go to college. Have you ever experienced a desperate situation in life? I'm sure you have. I'm sure all of us have at some point. And maybe for you it was financial like it was for Eddie. Maybe it was something relational. Maybe something in your marriage or something concerning a friend or maybe just loneliness. You think, man, I'm just lonely. I, I, just, I just, I'm desperately need a friend. Some of you need encouragement tonight. You're distraught over everything happening in the world. You think, man, I just need a word of encouragement. Others, if you, if you were honest... You might even say, I struggle believing that God really loves me. I mean, I I know that he loves, you know, the world. I mean, we read that in the Bible. I know he loves all people, but does God really love me as an individual? Because you know the struggles and the sin that you have, and you, you sometimes question, does God really love me? And so tonight we want to talk about the love, compassion, and provision of God for a desperate widow and her two sons. And God used the prophet Elisha to show, to demonstrate his love, provision, and care for a a woman, a widow on the fringe of society that many people would consider a nobody. God showed his love to her through Elisha. So I want you to turn to 2 Kings chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 1 through 7. 2 Kings chapter 4. We continue in our study 
with Elisha. And his ministry is just, just heating up here. We've got a lot of ground to cover in the life of Elisha. But I'm excited to share with you tonight what God's been teaching me. Now, you remember last time, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the life of Elijah, and he was, he was ministering to kings. You remember the allied forces of Israel, Judah, and Edom, they were teaming up to go fight Edom. And, and those three kings needed a word from God, so they found Elisha, and they went to him. And so Elisha's ministering to kings on the international stage. Uh, but this chapter, we see Elijah ministering to an individual. She had two sons as well, but, but this, this text shows us God does not, he, he does care for everybody, but he also is interested in the individual. And that's, that's what theologically is what's happening here. And so you have a woman here who's in a desperate situation. So chapter 4, verse 1, 2 Kings, says that now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha. We don't know her name. We don't know the names of her sons. We just know that she was in a pretty desperate situation. The sons of the prophets were people, were, were men in training for ministry. They were very similar to seminary students today who were in training. They, they served in small cities where Elijah and Elisha would often visit. They were there uh, training and preparing for ministry. So she had a, a message for Elisha. She cried to Elisha, your servant, my husband is dead. And you know that your servant feared the Lord, but the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. She was in a desperate situation. She had lost her husband. Now she's in danger of losing her sons. Going all the way back to Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, he says that the prophet that died here, the sons of the prophet, was Obadiah. Now we're not told that. We don't know that for sure, but it's an interesting thought. And one reason that, that that is so is because in 1 Kings 18 and verse 4, it says uh, that Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. And then you, you see here in chapter 4, verse 1, your servant feared the Lord. So there is a connection there. And Jewish history, at least some Jewish history, would say that this was, was Obadiah. And you remember Obadiah hid 100 prophets in, in, in caves, and he, he fed them with bread and water. So Obadiah apparently borrowed money to feed these prophets. I mean, you think of trying to feed 100 people. That's a lot of people to feed. And so Obadiah, at that time, you wouldn't go to a bank to borrow money. You would go to an individual. And so he went to an individual and borrowed money, apparently, to feed these prophets. That was common at that time, to borrow money from an individual. Well, eventually, this son of the prophet died, whether it was Obadiah or someone else. This prophet died and left a financial burden to his wife. Now, without a breadwinner in the home and uh, two sons to feed, she's vulnerable. She's a widow. There's, uh, who's going to protect her? Who's going to provide for her? And so now the, the, the creditor, uh, the, the debt is so debilitating, the creditor has come for his money. He has apparently shown up and said, hey, it's, it's time to, to, to pay. And so uh, we're not told this, but my, I, I'm imagining that she perhaps had talked him into waiting. Maybe she said, hey, if you could just give me a little more time, give me three or four weeks, and, and I'll see what I can do. But she knows he's coming back. And, and so the need is urgent. The need is time sensitive. Uh, have you ever had a time sensitive need? 
where you think, God, I need, I need your answer now. It's like Peter, when he was sinking, you know, walking on the water, he didn't time, have time for a long theological prayer. He just said, Lord, save me. Just a quick, just God, I need you now. And there's, there's moments in life where we face those times where we say, God, this is urgent. I need you to provide right now. And so we, we go to him in prayer. And so she, that's why she's crying. She's cried to Elijah. What, what am I going to do? The creditor's here. Now, to us, it sounds strange. Why would someone come and take your children? You know, we have laws to prevent those types of things. But in this day, that was how debts were repaid. Uh, in fact, the Mosaic law actually allowed it. If you go back to Exodus 21, a Hebrew could, could become a slave and serve for six years. This is in verse 2. But in the seventh year, the slave would be free. So slavery was a way to pay off debt. But it was not long-term. It was six years. But nonetheless, what mom wants to lose her child for six years? Uh, you know, my oldest is almost 13. I can't imagine, you know, losing him for six years, how much we would miss. And he's the development and growth and all the time at home. You know, that, that, so it's no consolation to think, oh, you'll see him in seven years. Uh, well, a lot happens in seven years. And so she's in a, an urgent situation. But nonetheless, the creditor has every right to come and take her children to pay off the debt that she now owes him because her husband has passed away. So you feel the tension here. And this brings us to our first point. I've got four points for you tonight. Here's our first. Desperate situations reveal the validity of our faith. Desperate situations reveal the validity of our faith. The widow took her desperate problem to Elisha. There were two reasons that she did that. First, it was practical. And second, it was theological. It was practical because her husband was a son of the prophet. He was training in ministry. Elisha was the prophet in Israel. So he, uh, her husband was under his authority. That's why she says twice, your servant, your servant. He's under your authority, Elisha. So I'm coming up the chain of command here. Practically speaking, I don't know who else to go to. I'm going to come to you for help. And also practically it was, there was injustice now that the nation of Israel's worship in Baal. We've talked about that in weeks past. Where else is she going to go for help? The, 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 the country's not going to help her. Government's not going to help her. So she's going to Elisha. But it was also theological because Elisha was God's spokesperson. So by going to Elisha, she was essentially going to God. She's taking her need to God and asking him to intervene. So this situation revealed that her faith in God was real. It was valid. It was authentic, we might say. In the midst of idolatrous Israel, while so many people worship the false god Baal, you have one God-fearing, uh, Yahweh-worshiping widow here in Israel. And this is her. And so she takes her situation to God. It's, it's like what Psalm 118 verse 5 says. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. Don't you love that verse? He answered me and set me free. That distress may still be present, but God can set you free in the midst of that distress. He can take it off your shoulders, off your chest, and he assumes responsibility of it, and you're free. And so that's what she's doing. She's taking it to God. It's like Jeho Jehoshaphat prayed in 2 Chronicles chapter 20 and verse 12, for we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. 
What a great prayer to, to tell the Lord. I don't know what to do, Lord, but our eyes, my eyes, God, are upon you. I'm looking to you for wisdom. I'm looking to you for guidance. I'm looking to you for strength. That's what she was doing. Being a Christian does not mean having all the answers. It means we take our problems to the Lord Jesus Christ and ask him for help. Uh, I've been meditating and just thinking some about 1 Corinthians lately. And the second verse in the very first chapter, listen to what it says. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, okay, writing to believers, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So what does it mean to be a Christian? It means to call on the Lord Jesus Christ, not just once for salvation, but all the time for help. So we call upon him. It's not just Lord Jesus, I receive you as my Savior. That's where it begins. But then the whole rest of life, it's, God, I need your help. Lord Jesus, help me. I need your strength. It's calling upon him. And that's what we see this widow doing here by going to Elisha. So Elisha responds with two questions. He says in verse 2, And Elisha said to her, What shall I do for you? Tell me, what have you in the house? So he's looking for a solution. The, the creditor has every legal right to take her sons. Elisha can't change that, but he will try to find a solution. And so Elisha represents the compassion of God here. God, One source said this, God's faithful people matter to him, even if they are unknown to the majority of the world. Not, not many people probably knew about this, this widowed woman, but to God, she was important. What's interesting is she knew the inventory of her home. He says, your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Don't read past that too quickly. She didn't say, well, you know, I've, I've got the, the expensive china for, as a wedding gift that we received years ago, or, or I've got some animals that we could sell, or I've got some furniture that we could, we, we, could, we could pawn off and we could make money off of. She doesn't have that. All she said, I've got a jar of oil. That She's poor. She's in a desperate situation. She, she needs help. And the term for jar just comes from a verb meaning anoint. And therefore, it just refers to a small container that, that, that was probably used, that, that contained oil that was used for either anointing the body or for cooking or for, for light to see with. So oil was essential. But this jar of oil would now become a catalyst for God's provision for her. So Elisha said, go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels and not too few. In other words, grab as many as you can. Get as many jars as you can. The uh, translation, the message, uh, translates these verses like this. Here's what you do, said Elisha. Go up and down the street and borrow jugs and bowls from all your neighbors. And not just a few, all you can get. That's what he's telling her. Grab all you can get and let's see what happens. One source wrote this, relief often begins with the little we have at hand. Our second point is that God's provision may proceed from what we already possess. God's provision may proceed from what we already possess. God would provide for this widow with what she already had. That's a jar of oil. Remember what Moses had? Remember God said in, in Exodus 4:2, what is that in your hand? Moses had a staff. God would use that staff to part the Red Sea. What about the boy by the Sea of Galilee who had five barley loaves and two fish? Jesus would use that. He would bless it and feed thousands. You see, 
they just used what they had. And, and God blessed it. What, what jar of oil do you have in your house? What jar of oil do you have? What is it that you already possess that God could use to provide for you and to bless the church? Some of you are great writers. I know that because we have a team that writes adult curriculum, and I, I see what you write, and it's incredible. It's a great blessing to this church. Some of you are very gifted at that, or, and, and maybe you're not utilizing that gift. We, we need your gift. That could be a, a tremendous blessing, and you already have that. You just need to use that gift. Others of you, man, you've got the gift of hospitality. You could open your home. You could have a home group or life group in your home to reach your neighborhood for Christ. You already possess that gift. You just need to use it. Others of you, you have the gift of time. You're in a season of life. Maybe the kids are grown. You're retired. You, you have the gift of time. You possess that, and you can use that for the kingdom. You can use that to advance the kingdom of God right here in Birmingham and around the world. So ask the Lord to show you what jar of oil do I have, God, that I could use for your kingdom to advance your purposes. We often are tempted to covet what someone else has when God's provision for us might be what we already possess. The answer to her problem was already in her possession. Elisha explained the next step after the widow collected a number of jars. She, she went house to house, and she collected these jars. She shut the door and began pouring the oil into the empty jars. Once a jar was full, she would set it aside and begin filling the next one. The instruction was simple. The miracle would occur in private. Elisha's instructions did not incur a public display. Uh, this was a private matter for this widow and her two sons. One source said that she would close the door so that she would not be distracted by her neighbors. This widow didn't go into her house and turn on Facebook Live to display this miracle to everybody. And know that this was a private matter. Uh, and she did exactly what Elisha said. She didn't question. She just obeyed. And so she begins pouring the oil into this jar. Now, I wonder what her neighbors would have thought. Like, why, why does she need all these jars? Or when am I going to get my jars back? We're, we're, we're not told any of those things. But here's our third point tonight. Our personal needs are often met by God's private supply. Our personal needs are often met by God's private supply. The widow did not set up a table in public right in front of her house and, and line up all these jars filled with oil. She went in behind Closed doors, like Elisha said, she shut the door and began doing what Elisha told her to do. Sometimes God's work in our lives is very personal, and it's between us and him. Remember Matthew 6, Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. And in that context, he's talking about giving and prayer. Don't, don't give just, you know, hey, I just gave this much money so the people will think well of you. Don't, don't pray and try to sound spiritual so that people think how godly you are. Those should be done in secret, Jesus said. Um, and now, why is this miracle to be done in secret? The best I can interpret this is that God was doing a deep personal work in the life of this family. And so the need was deeply personal. Therefore, the remedy was personal. And so this is not a public display. Um, God's miracles are not for show. 
therefore drawing us into a deeper relationship with him. Not everything God does in our lives needs to be broadcast on social media. And I know this is challenging for us. We live in a day of fame and celebrities, and we want people to think highly of us, but not everything God is doing in our life needs to be broadcast. Some things are deeply personal. Now, there may be a time later when we share it or other people recognize what's happened, but not at that moment. This is between the widow and this is between Yahweh. This is between the widow and God. Bill was a successful businessman in Hollywood, California. Eventually, he was saved and began walking with the Lord. He wanted to take his walk with God to another level, so he decided to make a contract with God. He was a businessman, and making contracts was was something he was familiar with, so he decided to do it. So on one Sunday afternoon in 1951, he mentioned to his wife that he wanted to make a contract with God. So his wife went to one bedroom, he went to another bedroom, his wife got on her knees, I'm, I'm assuming Bill did too, and they, they both prayed to God and they began writing out what they wanted from God. His wife wrote out some things like, well, I'd like, you know, two cars, and she said one of them would be a Ford because that was the cheapest car at the time, and she said, I'd like to have a house, you know, and she, she wrote down some specific things about the house, and I'd like to have two to four children, and then she wrote down some spiritual things. The two came back together, and, and Bill asked her to share first, and she did, and then it came time for him to share. And his, his list was, was really mostly or all spiritual things. This is, these are a few things that Bill put in his contract. That he desired to be a slave of Jesus Christ. Man, what a thing to, to write down. I want to be a slave of Jesus Christ. You read Paul's letters. He often begins, bond slave of Jesus. And that, that's, that, was, that was Bill's heart. Bill also put everything that they had belonged to God. He said they would be available to do God's will and that they would trust God to provide for them and they would not seek fame or fortune. That's what he wrote down. And he signed this contract. It was a private matter in their own home. They didn't broadcast it. It was between he and his wife and the Lord. 24 hours after signing this contract, Bill said God spoke to his heart and gave him a vision to reach college students all over the world. And that vision became a ministry known as Campus Crusade for Christ, called Crew Today. And as Bill would say, without, had there been no contract, there would have been no vision. He felt like because he had made this contract with God, God could entrust him. God knew his heart. God could trust him with this ministry. And so over the years, millions of college students, including me, have been impacted by that ministry. I was involved in that ministry in college. I was discipled through that ministry. And it began with a private contract with God saying, God, I, I surrender everything to you. But it became known later, but at the time it was private. So what's happening here, this is a private matter. This was between this widow and God. So with the doors closed, this widow continued pouring the oil until she ran out. The oil was still flowing. She told her son to bring her another vessel. But her son said, there's not another. You know, we're, we're out. Now, it could have been that the widow took all the jars in the neighborhood. That's one possibility. But I think something else is happening here. Uh, it, it is possible that she only took a percentage of what was available. 
It could have been that she felt bad and said, well, I don't want to take everything that you have. I'll just take a few. And so whatever she had, she brought to her house, and, and they were full. So the implication is that she could have had more jars of oil had she asked for more. So the supply was not the issue. The problem was the lack of jars. So the number of jars reflected the amount of faith that this woman had. So once, once she ran out of jars, it says this, then the oil stopped flowing, the end of verse 6. The word for stopped is the same one used in Joshua 10. Remember when the, it said the sun stood still, the sun stopped? That, that's what's the same word here. The oil completely stopped. Verse 7 says, the widow went and told the man of God. Notice she calls him not Elisha, she calls him a man of God. She's seen a miracle now. And it's, she realizes this is a man of God. You remember the woman, the widow at Zarephath called Elijah the man of God after as she said, I know that you're a man of God, and the word of God, in the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth, because her son had been raised from the dead. And so she knows now Elisha is a man of God. This is God's work. And Elisha in this story is a picture of Jesus. You see, Jesus ministered to the multitudes, as we said earlier, with the, with the thousands. But Jesus also ministered to the individual. Remember in Luke chapter 8, a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years touches the fringe of his garment, and immediately the blood stops flowing. She was changed, and he eventually says to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. You see, Jesus was interested in the individual. And, and that's what's happening here. God is showing his compassion to this, this widow. And so um, Jesus is, or Elisha, uh, ultimately representing Jesus, but Elisha is saving her sons from slavery. You see, that's what Jesus has done for us. Jesus has come and paid our sin debt in full so that we can no longer have to be slaves to sin. That's what 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ suffered once the righteous, that's him, for the unrighteous, that's us, that's all of us. The righteous for the unrighteous, why? In order to bring us to God. So that he could bring us to God, so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life and have fellowship with him. That's what this passage is about. It's about the gospel, it's about God's compassion for people. So this is our fourth and final point tonight. The provision we experience may be in proportion to the amount of faith we demonstrate. The provision that we experience may be in proportion to the amount of faith we demonstrate. What if the widow would have gathered more jars? What, based on what I see here, then she would have had more money to live on. Um, what if you step out in faith and decide, you know what? I'm going to go talk to my neighbor about Christ. You know what? I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to just take a step of faith, and I'm going to talk to my, that coworker about Jesus. Then what can you expect? You can expect the supernatural provision of God. You can expect words to start flowing. Have you ever been there where you just think, who is that talking? That's the Holy Spirit. He will give you boldness. He will give you words and when you don't even know what to say. But that you have to take the first step. And so the, the, the amount of provision we experience depends on the amount of faith we demonstrate. And so you think about a mission trip. Some of you hear about a mission trip and you think, oh, I can never do that. I can never afford that. 
What if you just surrender to God and commit to go? You will experience the provision of God. I remember my first international mission trip, 2003, surrendered to the Lord, and then a friend from India invites me to go with him to India. Now, seminary student, I had a job, but I'm telling you, there's no way I could afford to go halfway around the world or more than halfway around the world to go serve for 10 days. But you know what? God provided. God, God in his supernatural provision, provided through a number of different people. And there was so much left over that it, it helped me for the next mission trip, a, a, a large part for the next mission trip later that year. It was a supernatural provision of God. And God just gave me the grace to step out in faith. And so that's what happens. When we step out and demonstrate faith, God says, I've got provision waiting for you. And so I encourage you. Maybe some of you, you you've not been giving like you know you ought to the last few months. You think, no, I need to hold on to it. And my friend, if you will give in faith, you will experience the supernatural provision of God. It, it's just it's based on who God is. He's a generous, loving God. Now, Elijah, Elisha gave the widow instruction on how to move forward in her life. He said, go sell the oil and pay your debts, and you and your son can live on, you and your sons can live on the rest. So the widow would sell the jars, sell the oil in the jars to pay for her debts. So now the creditor would not have to come take her children because her debt would be retired. But notice, notice the abundant provision. Look at the last part. And you and your sons can live on the rest. There, there was an endowment there for her to continue living. So she wouldn't have to borrow any more money. She, this cycle of debt would be canceled. Her life would be completely changed now. Who's going to provide for her? Well, God provided through all this oil and it just supernatural provision. Um, she, it, it, this, it's amazing. Some of you tonight, you say, Barry, my, my, God's met our material needs. That, that's not where your need is. But you have spiritual needs. Maybe you're not experiencing the victory of God in your Christian life right now. Did you know when you're saved, God gives, immediately gives you the Holy Spirit to dwell inside of you. I want you to listen. Just a few things. There's many more. Just a few things that the Holy Spirit does in the life of the believer. The Holy Spirit, Jesus called the Holy Spirit the helper. The Spirit helps us pray when we don't know how to pray. That's in Romans 8. The Spirit gives us boldness to proclaim the gospel. That's Acts 4.31. The Spirit gives us guidance like he did to Philip in Acts chapter 8. The Spirit gives us insight as he did Peter in Acts chapter 10. The Spirit calls us on mission for God like he did Barnabas and Saul in Acts chapter 13. The Spirit gives us boldness to obey God like he did Paul in Acts chapter 20. Listen to what Paul said. And now compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem and not knowing what will happen to me there. I don't know what's going to happen, but the Holy Spirit is compelling me to obey God. And then Romans 8, 6 says, a life lived under the control of the Spirit is life and peace. If you are a Christian, you already have the Holy Spirit. Just like this woman already had the jar of oil in her house. You have the Spirit of God. You have everything you need to live a victorious life, Christian life. Romans 8 says we're more than conquerors through Christ. So be encouraged tonight. You don't have to go look for something else. You have all you need in the Holy Spirit. 
He will strengthen you. If you will surrender and continually just, God, fill me with the Spirit of God. That is, control me. Control my life by the Holy Spirit. Then that's where victory comes every day. Well, even with a partial scholarship, Eddie didn't have enough money to go to college. So he just thought, well, I'll just keep working there full time. But one day he came back to work and his boss pulled out a checkbook and wrote a personal check for the remaining balance of Eddie's college tuition. And he, he handed it to Eddie with a smile. And uh, Eddie couldn't believe it. thought, man, I get to go to college now. Uh, well, his boss was Truett Cathy. And that restaurant was the Dwarf Grill there in Georgia. And Eddie went on to college in Atlanta. He pursued a career in education, became a classroom teacher, and eventually was appointed assistant superintendent of education in 1991. This is what Eddie said when he reflected back on Mr. Kathy's generosity. He said, he became not only a boss, but a friend that I respected and appreciated. You see, Eddie learned that Mr. Kathy not only cared about the restaurant and all the employees, but Mr. Kathy cared personally for him. And my friend, I hope tonight that you have been reminded that God not only cares and loves the whole world, he cares and loves you as an individual because he created you in his image. And he sent his son Jesus to die for you. So you are loved. Rejoice in that truth tonight and celebrate the love of God. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your amazing love. Lord, we, we cannot fully understand it, but to the best of, of our ability, Lord, help us to understand how much you love us. Thank you for your compassion that we saw tonight, how you care for the marginalized, for those that the world would just turn their back on. You show compassion to them. Father, you know every need tonight. Those who are listening, you know their needs. And I pray you would minister to them. And I pray that they would respond to you in faith. And I pray, just as this widow cried out to Elisha, they would cry out to you, O God, and that you would minister your love, your peace, your provision, your compassion to them. Father, so that they would have a deeper walk with you and they would bring glory to you. Thank you, Father, for speaking to our hearts and thank you for your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you, my friends, for joining us tonight. I hope you'll tune in Sunday. Pastor will be back in the book of Job. It'll be incredible. I look forward to it. I hope you do as well. We'll see you then. Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at valleydale.org.